This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. to get your hands off my dick. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. McManus, you're fucking on my floor, McManus. My dick, you don't have to mop it up again. You lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, you have a face full of shit, you become a different man. This is a prison, not a democracy. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Please, sir, may I fuck my wife? Don't you walk away, you cocksucker. Come on, Dad. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No quote? Right now, we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. Hello everybody, welcome to episode 5 of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Now first thing that I need to address, I had some folks email the show and message me on social media and they pointed out on the last episode, capital P, I didn't do my usual episode MVP and body count for the episode. Just to make it clear, it wasn't the case that I forgot to do them. In terms of the show MVP, there were a number of good performances in that episode, particularly from Edie Falco's Diane, Leon and BD, that it would have been a bit harsh to elevate one of them over the others. So for that reason, I didn't award anyone for a particular performance. In terms of the body count, okay, I did simply forget with that. So, a little later than normal for the episode, we had a body count of two, that being the guest starring Eric Roberts as Richard Lytalian and Jefferson Keane, both men going by way of execution by lethal injection. So in terms of the series, that brings the total up to seven people having snuffed it, and I'll do a roll call of the dead at the end of this series. I've also decided that from now on I'm going to play a sound every time somebody mentions about the possibility of a riot, as it seems to have happened at least once every episode so far, so listen out for that as indicated as so. Onto this episode though, Season 1, Episode 5, Straight Life, written by Tom Fontana and it was directed by Leslie Libman and Larry Williams, so this is the first time that two people have taken the helm for an episode. Prior to this episode of Oz, Leslie Libman came from directing music videos such as Chicago's You're the Inspiration, Manic Monday by The Bangles, and Ordinary Lives by The Bee Gees, before moving into TV where she partnered with Larry Williams on six episodes of Out of Order for MTV. The episode holds an 8.6 on IMDb and was first broadcast on August 4th, 1997. Also on this day, the world's oldest person, Jeanne Calment, passed away in Arles, France at the age of 122. Superheated rock from a volcano flowed into the capital city of Montserrat, which had been abandoned days earlier, and 185,000 members of the Teamsters Union started a 15-day strike in a dispute with UPS. So with that, let's get on with the show! You know how you always hear about them people in Iowa or Missouri or wherever have some big river overflows? The fucking water keeps pouring over its riverbanks out of control, taking out farms and towns and everything in its path. Everybody tries to stop it, but nobody can. Everybody's lives are wiped out. Completely destroyed. And the fucking river, it don't give a shit. It just keeps rising. Year 
after year after fucked up year. My question is, are them heads in the Midwest whacked out on what? This one joke I seen on TV, his home had been washed away four times. Four fucking times. Why don't he just leave? Why don't he jump in that pickup and drive to higher ground? Or is he like us in ours? There ain't no higher ground. So we start off with Kenny attending a visit from who I assume is his girlfriend, who has a young child with her. Kenny takes the baby and starts to cuddle it, however Kenny reaches into the baby's nappy and pulls out some sort of package containing drugs which he then swallows. This is something that you hear about happening in prisons and the story goes that the drugs get packed into a condom which the inmate then swallows and will pass through later on. So while you get the impression that this is Kenny's girlfriend and his child to begin with, it could also just be an acquaintance of his who happens to have a small child that they are able to use for transporting drugs. We also see Kenny getting a cavity search, but obviously they're not going to find anything on him, so he appears to be clean. We cut to later in the day and see Markstrom and Adebisi crowded around Kenny in their pod as Kenny is sat on the toilet and he has successfully passed the drugs through his digestive system. Swallowing this amount of drugs and hoping that they make it through your system must be incredibly dangerous. If the package was to somehow burst or disintegrate before he can get it out, Kenny would likely have overdosed and died. We then see the guys enjoying their drugs, the sound having been slowed down and the picture is moving all over the place mirroring the effects of the drugs for us. McManus comes into the pod they're hiding in and catches them in the act and we see Markstrom place something into his trousers. McManus is then walking with Diane, telling her that her officers are doing a poor job of stopping the drugs and he reiterates that the concept of Emerald City is that we never take our eyes off anyone. Diane says that they don't, but McManus asks her to explain how Beecher got a swatch sticker burned onto him, how did Alvarez manage to cut his face, and how others are able to use a classroom to snort heroin. Diane tells him that, like in life, things slide through, and if he has a problem with how she's running things, then to replace her. McManus says that he's not going to do that, and Diane questions as to whether or not that's just because they're sleeping together, and we get a quick flashback reminding us of that from the last episode. They arrive together to a staff meeting in the library, McManus apologises for being late, but Leo says that if he ever got there on time he'd think he'd have a heart attack. So the topic of conversation is drugs, with Healy saying that the more they try to stop them, the more they manage to get in. Sister Pete says that dealers are getting sentenced to longer prison time now, and Lenny, who we're seeing for the first time in a couple of episodes, makes the point that they've got a prison full of guys who are experts at moving drugs through any system. Healy says that Nino Shibeta has the largest operation, and that they can make a dent in the trade if they can stop him. Leo mentions to McManus that he wanted Nino in M-City, and that he thought McManus would be able to reach him. McManus thinks that he will in time, but Leo tells him that that is something that they don't have. McManus says that when it comes to drugs, there are two major players, Nina, as has already been mentioned, and Saeed. Sister Pete makes the point that the Muslims are anti-drugs, but that is the basis for McManus's plan, and we cut to her office where she and McManus are talking to Saeed. McManus tells Saeed that he needs his help to stop the flow of drugs, but Saeed says that that isn't his job. McManus says that Saeed knows everything about Oz and that he would be able to tell him the where's and the when's of anything going down, but Saeed tells him that he will end up dead as a result and he refuses their offer, and that he has to take care of the disease his own way. Sister Pete asks what he means by that and Saeed tells her that he is referring to fighting the addiction. She tells him that that's what she is trying to do with her counselling sessions and that she and Saeed have the same goals, but that because of who they are, they can't help each other achieve those goals and as a result others get hurt in the process. Saeed mentions that they both believe in a higher power and that his will be done, with Pete simply saying, his will or yours. While I doubt that Sister Pete is questioning Saeed's faith, 
She might think that he has an ulterior motive and is disguising it as a religious crusade. But Mana says that God isn't too helpful unless you give him a nudge before motioning to an officer to take Saeed away. But Mana says that Nino's drugs fuck with people's heads and that maybe it's time that he fucked with his. With that, we cut to M-City and McManus is talking with Nino. He tells Nino that he's had a tough few weeks, reminding him of all the various happenings and saying that Nino's troops are thinning out. He tells him that the Blacks and the Latinos are taking over, both in Oz and at street level, and that he has to accept that the days of the Mafia are over. Nino tells him, and pardon my attempted Italian accent here, Che cosa Mafia? meaning who calls it the Mafia and denying the existence of such a thing. But McManus laughs it off saying that Nino is of an age where he might want to start to relax a bit. He tells Nino that he has a friend in the Drug Enforcement Administration and that if Nino is willing to talk that they can maybe make a deal. Nino says, what are you going to do, put me in witness protection? And calls McManus a fool and that he can try to not be one for the next thousand years but he'll always be one. And as such, Nino is unable to change either. He says that he can't turn his back on who he is and he certainly worked for McManus or a deal with the D. He asks McManus if he's done with him, and McManus tells him, for now, before leaving. We get a passage of time, and Diane is reading out some names of inmates that have been transferred to elsewhere in the prison. Attention! The following inmates are to be transferred immediately. As I call your name, gather your belongings, and form a line by Officer Vogelzang. 88P715, Adavino. 91J224, Jambro. 85P661, Pelicano. 94R511, Ricotta. I rip a good one, baby. So not only has Nino lost everyone that he was playing cards with, which probably makes him the winner by default, he's been left with no fellow Italians in M-City, and as others around him are pointing out, he's all alone. He looks up and sees McManus looking back down at him, and McManus has got a right smug look on his face. We cut to the lunchroom and see Nino heading towards the kitchen. He's been sat alone eating his meal and seems to have a bit of a worried look on his face, seemingly to reaffirm his newfound loneliness. He goes behind the counter and summons Markstrom to a stockroom. First and most important order of business, he wants some chocolate bars. A mixture of with nuts and without for that bit of variety. He then tells Markstrom that he's been handling things well since D'Angelo's quote-unquote accident. You'll remember that a couple of episodes back, D'Angelo made it known that he was running the kitchen operation. He also tells Markstrom that with Keen dead, he is willing to let bygones be bygones, and then proceeds to tell Markstrom that his tits are firm and round and that maybe he could suck on his tits. Don't worry, all will become clear in a moment. It's another use of prison slang, but if you were going to take it on a literal level, Oz would be a very different show altogether. Markstrom tells him that he knows a lot of people who would like to suck Nino's tits and they shake hands, but not before Nino whispers to him that if Markstrom fucks him over, he'll cut that hand off. They leave the stockroom and Nino goes back to M-City. Adebisi is in the kitchen and asks Markstrom what that was all about, to which Markstrom tells him the future, us earning the future. Gonna hand it over to Augustus now to explain about Nino's tits. Tits! That's what we call drugs. 60% of the violence in prison is due to tits. Either people not paying their debts or people trying to control the traffic. <laughs> the traffic. Here in Oz, the last few days, the traffic has been bumper to bumper. We get the crime flashback of new character, Ronald Perkelwalt 
played here by Brian Tarantina. Brian had previously appeared in Barry Levinson's Donnie Brasco, as well as having bit parts in Jacob's Ladder, Uncle Buck, and an episode of Homicide Life on the Street, which aired later in 1997. So we see Ronald at a fire station where he waits for the crew to go out on a call before he enters the building and then commits second degree arson, which is when a person knowingly or maliciously causes a fire or explosion which damages a building. As the fire crew returns to their headquarters on fire, we get a shot of Ronald admiring his handiwork before we cut back to M-City where he's trying to score some drugs from another inmate. Adebisi and Kenny approach him saying that he is late on his payments, but there's not a whole lot they can do as Diane is not far away from them. He tells Adebisi that he's got a cheque coming next week and he'll pay him then. Adebisi tells him that's what he said last week, but Ronald says that he can't be held responsible for the US mail, and considering the 185,000 drivers that walked out on UPS on this day, it's a good job he didn't use them either. So the homeboys meet up with Nina, who tells them that tomorrow we get healthy and I want you boys. And at this point, Kenny wants to know who Nino is calling boy, but Markstrom tells Kenny to take a walk. It's becoming a common theme of Kenny being told to leave certain conversations due to his attitude. There have been a few references to black men being referred to as boy, which is incredibly offensive to the black community. The origin of the term goes all the way back to the days of slavery as well as segregation laws passed in the Jim Crow era, which covered the late 1800s after the Reconstruction era in the US, and up to them being abolished in 1965. The term was used to indicate that black men were of lower social status and being less than a man. Black men were not viewed as full-fledged people, but as mentally and physically inferior to their white counterparts. It's hard to tell if Nino is using the term in this way. I don't think that he is, but it's understandable as to why Kenny reacts the way he does. Maxim tells Nino that he wants to be there when the shipment of drugs comes in and asks where it is happening, but Nino tells him that it's an old family recipe and that he doesn't share. Maxim says that if they are to be partners, they need to know how risky the operation is going to be. They go into Nino's pod and he proceeds to tell them how the drugs get into Oz. Adabizi says that it can't be the kitchen, otherwise they would have seen them by now. Nino tells him that the kitchen would be the first place the guards would look, and that the drugs actually come in through the post office, or the mail room, or whatever you want to call it. He reaches under his bed and pulls out a box containing Versace socks, and he shows that they hide the drugs in some sort of foil and then hide that in the socks. Adebisi says that that's an old trick, but Nino says that it's an old trick that still works. Quite frankly, it's safer than swallowing a condom full of the stuff and hoping that you shit it out at the end of the day. Markstrom asks where the drugs get cut and Nino tells him that it's in the prison but he isn't going to tell Markstrom everything, or at least not until they've been in business for a little while. All the while this has been going on, Ryan has been in the background keeping an eye on the meeting, presumably wanting a piece of the action too. The homeboys leave Nino's pod and Adebisi says that he doesn't want to go into business with Nino, but Markstrom tells him that it won't be for long, they just need to find out how the operation works and then they can take it over. They walk past Ryan, who asks, hey, what's happening? But he gets completely blanked by Markstrom and Adebisi. Ryan heads in to see Nino and tells him that his previous offer still stands and that he still wants to help in any way that he can. Nino tells him, okay, but he's very dismissive towards Ryan. We cut to Ronald talking to Leo and McManus, saying that he's willing to testify against Adebisi, Markstrom and Kenny about dealing drugs. Leo tells him that they need to figure out how the drugs are getting into Oz and asks if he knows anything about that. Ronald says that he doesn't, but Leo tells him that if he finds out, then to let him know. Ronald seems determined to find out and says that he wants Leo to bust Adebisi's ass. so presumably something has happened between Ronald and Adebisi in the past when dealing. As he's about to leave, McManus asks Ronald if he's been going to the drug counselling recently. He says that he goes all the time, but Sister Pete says that he hasn't been for two weeks, and Ronald promises that he will go today. Leo and McManus share a little laugh and a little chuckle. They know that Ronald isn't the most reliable source, but from what we've seen, he's probably the only option they've got. 
We get a quick shot of Ronald seeing Adebisi and Kenny as he's leaving the office. Like I say, we don't know what the history is between Ronald and Adebisi, but I'm willing to bet that they're not friends. We cut to the drug pod, where Ryan and Beecher are snorting some heroin, and Ronald walks in. Ryan tells him to get lost and that he's not squeezing his tits anymore because he doesn't pay. Lots of groping going on in this episode, it would seem. Ronald says that's not why he's there and asks Ryan how Markstrom and his crew get the drugs into Oz. Ryan says that he doesn't know how they do it, but that he's got a couple of guesses. He tells Ronald to sit down and gives him some drugs to snort on. We move into the mailroom and we see this is where Schellinger works, and he's putting some packages through a scanner where they check for any contraband. The officer on duty spots something and they open up a package with some shoes inside and inside the heel of the shoe are some drugs. We see Nino slamming down one of the phones and he beckons over the homeboys. They go into a classroom to talk. Kenny once again is excluded from the conversation and waits outside. Nino is pissed and wants to know how the events in the mailroom happened. Says that his operation has been running smooth as a silk shirt and that as soon as he tells Markstrom, all of a sudden the guards know and he's wondering if one of Markstrom's boys is a mole. Markstrom tells him that's impossible, but Nino thinks anything is possible. He tells Markstrom that if he wants to stay in business together, to find the leak and plug it today. Markstrom says not to worry about it, and he'll sort it. He and Adebisi start to leave, but Nino asks Adebisi to stay behind. Markstrom looks on from outside and looks worried as Augustus narrates that everybody has secrets and how we all carry out our secrets in hiding. Augustus's segment here is intercut with other inmates rapidly shaking their head, which, according to IMDB, is a reference to Jacob's Ladder, which I haven't seen, so I'll just have to take their word for it. Augustus ends his narration saying that sometimes secrets will kill you, and as we come back, we see Leo and McManus enter the gym. Once in there, we see that Markstrom has been hung. McManus also seems to have found his cap from episode one. I didn't think we saw it again. McManus says that Markstrom didn't strike him as the suicide type and that he is sorry for Leo. Leo asks him... For what? McManus saying that Markstrom was Leo's cousin, referring back to the first episode. Leo then tells McManus that he wasn't his cousin, Markstrom was an undercover narcotics cop. I thought this reveal of Markstrom being an undercover cop was really well done. Even though he has had limited screen time, he has always been seen with the rest of the homeboys gang and given away very little as to suggest that he was working undercover. He's often been seen together with Adebisi and Kenny when they are taking drugs. As an undercover cop, Markstrom would not be allowed to take any drugs, otherwise he would be looking at jail time himself and his undercover career would be done for. He could fake it, however, which is most likely what he's been doing this whole time. And if you think back to the start of the episode when McManus breaks up the homeboys doing drugs, Markstrom places something in his trousers and there's a lingering shot on his face too. Maybe that was a clue in hindsight, but you could easily miss it if you're not looking for it. We cut to Leo's office where an argument between he and McManus intensifies. McManus can't believe that Leo didn't mention about Markstrom being undercover, and Leo tries to justify it saying that he was trying to put the brakes on the drug traffic. And his thinking was that the less people that knew about the undercover operation, the better. McManus says that Leo should have still told him, but Leo didn't want lectures about prisoners' rights and entrapment, and the idea was to get Markstrom in good with the traffickers and find out the operation, but somebody must have given him up. He thinks it might have been one of Markstrom's, as he puts it, bunkies in narcotics, and that they must be talking to the mob. The phone rings, and Leo, in his funniest moment so far, answers, What? Oh, yes, Governor. And this time it's Devlin who wants a lockdown. McManus says, of course he does, he's fighting for his political life, and that he's trying to take the focus off of himself and put it onto someone else. Leo says that he was going to go into lockdown anyway, and that it will stay that way until they find the murderer. 
We head back to M-City and we see Ryan talking to Ronald and asking who would have thought that Markstrom was an undercover cop and saying that anybody else could be too and we get a quick go around of the main characters before they both say to each other that either of them could also be undercover. Ryan tries to go for a walk with Nino but is ignored again. People don't want to seem to talk to him this episode. So instead Nino is with Adebisi and he's saying to Nino that the guards didn't buy Markstrom's suicide. But Nino didn't think that they would anyway and says that it was more of a warning to Leo not to mess with them. Adebisi mentions about the lockdown, but Nino doesn't think it will last too long. He then lets in that the mailroom operation was a decoy to see what the homeboys were made of, and that the truth of the matter is he has no intention of telling them how the operation really works. You would see this type of plan used again years later in Game of Thrones when Tyrion Lannister used a similar tactic to expose a leak by giving three people different information and then seeing if any of that information was shared. It's a well-established technique in intelligence agencies and was popularised by Tom Clancy in his book Patriot Games, which he called the technique a canary trap. Nino tells Adebisi that the fastest way to end the lockdown is to give up one of his gang, and it is very much his gang now what with Keane having been executed and Markstrom out of the way also, which Nino makes reference to as well by mentioning about how he felt Keane and Markstrom were holding Adebisi back, and that he saw early on that Adebisi knows how to get things done. He asks that because Adebisi's name ends in I whether he might be Italian or not, and Adebisi does the same asking if Nino might be African due to his name ending in A. The two shake hands, confirming their new alliance, before the inmates are placed in lockdown for the foreseeable future to close out Act 1. So Act 2 begins with Alvarez talking about how he hates lockdowns and he says that he's fiending for some tits. He's now sharing a pod with Groves and he asks if Groves likes drugs or not, but Groves seems to be of the Mr. Mackey drugs are bad mentality. Alvarez says that Groves must have been messed up when eating his mother and basically makes out that Groves was a bit of a mummy's boy. Groves tells Alvarez that he likes his scars and Alvarez concludes that that must be the reason why McManus put them together because Groves is the only person more messed up than himself. Groves then comes over with some postage stamps and tells Alvarez to lick them as they have liquid LSD on them instead of glue. Alvarez changes his tune and says that Groves has just given stamp collecting a whole new meaning. So Groves has come up with a brilliant way to get another type of drug into prison. Who would have ever thought to lick postage stamps to check for drugs? It's genius. Diane goes to see McManus in his office and she's shaken up by Markstrom's murder, saying that she feels responsible because he was a cop and says that maybe McManus is right that she is doing a poor job. McManus asks her to come to his place after work, but Diane has to drive home because her daughter has been acting up. So McManus suggests about the three of them going to dinner sometime. He tells Diane that he loves her, so either he falls for someone very easily, or their romantic tryst last episode wasn't a first-time occurrence. She doesn't say I love you back to him and says that the night of Keane's execution was messed up. She says that she doesn't know why she did it, questioning whether it was loneliness or not. McManus asks, does the why matter? To which Diane says that it doesn't and they nearly kiss again, but Diane sees another guard through the window. They get back to work business and McManus hands her a file of a new inmate, Scott Ross. Diane doesn't seem thrilled that he's coming in, but says that she can handle him and we then see Scott getting booked in along with his flashback, in which he was arrested for possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. We're also told this is his third as such conviction and therefore his sentence is life without parole. So habitual offender laws, more commonly known as the three strikes law, was first implemented in March 1994, so it was still fairly new at this time across America, although individual states have had their own versions of the law dating all the way back to 1797 in New York State. 
today, 28 states still have some form of three strikes law. So Scott Ross is played by Stephen Jeevedon. Prior to us, his first acting credit was as Klingon number one in a season two episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, before appearing in Swift Justice and States of Control. Looking at him here, he is the spitting image of Billy Zane. If you were to tell me they were brothers, I'd probably believe you. We see that Mac has been given to Scott as a sponsor and Diane goes over to uncuff him. Scott asks how long she's been working Oz, so it's been quickly established that there is a pre-existing relationship between the two of them. He thinks it's great, Diane not so much. Scott said that he always dreamt of her having him in cuffs, but Diane tells him that he isn't going to get any special treatment just because they knew each other on the outside. Mac asks how Scott and Diane knew each other, and Scott said that he used to ride motorcycles with her ex. Scott comes into M-City, and Schillinger sees him arrive from his pod on the second level, as Scott is shown to his pod, which seems to be the drug pod that everybody else has been using. The lockdown has ended, and everybody leaves their pods, probably just to get some fresh air more than anything else. And you just know that someone has been letting out some wicked farts in their pod during the lockdown, that some poor sod has had to endure. Email in who you think has had the wicked gas. Schillinger approaches Scott in his pod, and grabs him by the penis, to which Scott tells him, I'm going to give you ten minutes to get your hands off my dick. So Scott also knows Schillinger, from somewhere else too, probably from another prison stretch, but maybe it could have been on the outside. But that also raises the question, if Diane knew Scott on the outside, and Scott knew Schillinger on the outside, did Diane know Schillinger on the outside too? Who knows, maybe we'll find out in the future. Scott asks Schillinger if he has any cigarettes, and they have a laugh. Cut to Scott in a stairwell smoking a cigarette, so somebody has some somewhere, but Diane appears and tells him to put it out. He tells her that he isn't looking for any special favours, but they've known each other for a long time. Diane says that she was married to Glenn for four years, and during that time Scott was doing a six-year sentence, and they probably only really knew each other for five months when they were on the road together. Scott says that he was a man in love and that he still is, but Diane tells him to save it for the shower room. Scott somehow knows that Diane is having money problems, and he tells her that he has a way that she can make a lot of money. Diane says that she isn't interested and tells him to get back to M-City. We cut to another staff meeting and Leo is talking about overtime. There is good news and bad news. Good news being that they now have a contract with the Officers' Union and the Department of Correction. And I like how in the background there is a poster of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King present for Leo's good news. They disappear, however, when Leo has to deliver the bad news. By which I mean the shot changes, it's not like at that particular moment the poster fell down or anything. The bad news is that the staff can no longer do double shifts and Diane is furious as obviously this means her wages are going to take a hit. Healy calls her Lady Di and says that she should be happy as it frees her up to spend more time with her boyfriend and blows a kiss in McManus's direction. They ask what he's talking about, to which he says if they want to pretend they're not sleeping together, then that's fine. McManus throws a paper cup at Healy and they exchange words before Leo tells McManus to sit down and Healy to keep his comments to himself and moves the meeting along. Cut to McManus' office, where Diane is saying that if people at work don't respect him, then it makes things ten times harder. McManus just seems more bothered about their relationship ending, while Diane is more concerned with having to leave her job and go back on welfare. McManus says that he can give Diane money, but Diane tells him that he has alimony and a mortgage and can't afford to take her on and that she wouldn't want him to anyway. She leaves the office and McManus throws a bunch of papers on the floor in annoyance. Alimony, for anybody who doesn't know, is a provision paid to a spouse or after separation or divorce. It's basically maintenance pay. Sister Pete referred to McManus being divorced in episode 1, but we don't know how long he's been divorced for. So we're back in the stairwell, and Scott is talking about how cigarettes are currency in prison, and the camera moves around to reveal that it's Diane that he's talking to. He's striking a deal with Diane to bring in one carton of cigarettes per day, which she agrees to do, and leaves. 
We get a flashback to Saeed fainting from the previous episode, and he's off to see Dr. Prostopnik, who we're meeting for the first time, and is played here by Pat McNamara. He tells Saeed that his heart attack was brought on by hypertension, which Saeed calls the curse of his people. The doc tries to explain that black men are genetically predisposed to the condition, but Saeed doesn't believe it to be anything genetic and that it is caused by racism. Doc says that there are studies suggesting a link between the two, but the data is inconclusive. A more recent study from the American Journal of Hypertension, published in 2011, states that direct evidence linking individual racism to hypertension diagnosis is weak. However, the relationship of individual racism to ambulatory blood pressure is more consistent. There is no evidence linking internalised racism to blood pressure. Overall, the findings suggest that racism may increase the risk in hypertension and that these effects emerge more clearly from institutional racism than for racism on an individual level. That's just a broad overview, but I'll post a link to where you can find that study in the description for this episode. Saeed says that the evidence may be inconclusive to the scientists, but he knows it is fact due to black men of a working class background being forced to accept unfair treatment. The doc tells him he's more concerned for Saeed's health rather than the politics, and that if they do not treat him he is heading for heart disease, stroke and possible damage to other organs, and is told that he's going to prescribe him Turamin, which is a common drug for treating high blood pressure and angina. Saeed says that he cannot take that due to one of the side effects being lightheadedness if he stands up too quickly, and that because he kneels to pray to Mecca he needs something else. The doc tells him that instead he can prescribe Kalin, but the side effects of that include constipation, nausea and dizziness. Saeed tells him that that's no good either because he needs his mind to be clear and says that maybe side effects are God's way of telling us that we shouldn't be taking drugs. Doc tells him that he needs to take something otherwise he'll die, but Saeed tells him that he has no intention of dying. He leaves the doc's office seemingly without any sort of prescription, so maybe he's just going to try and tough this one out. We see Saeed in his pod where Rebidos come to have a talk with him. I'm sorry that you're ill. And who told you that I was ill? God. Oh, yes. You talk to God. When he's in town. Well, in Islam, we believe that only two people spoke to God directly. Muhammad, and praise be to him, and Moses. So you see, you are an excellent company. You think I'm lying or deluded? Oh, yes. I may well be. I do know sometimes I can see inside men's souls. And can you see the mind, old man? Yes. And what is there? Anger. Yes, I am angry. I'm angry at a society that cripples my people, that infects their bodies. No. You're angry at God. I am not. My illness is Allah's will. And I accept the bad as well as the good that God gives me. Still, you're angry at him and afraid. Afraid of dying. That is not true. You watched Jefferson Keene die, die gladly. Keene embraced death like a lover, like a traveler going home. You saw that and were afraid. You realized you aren't as willing to go. Get out of here, old man. Out. Ribado leaves while Saeed falls to his knees looking up to the heavens and praying, but he stops quickly as he can feel the pressure getting to him and he tries to calm himself. 
We then cut to a news report, which is reporting about the scandal involving Governor Devlin, accepting bribes, and reports that his wife has moved out of the Governor's mansion after learning about an affair. So that calls back to what McManus was referring to earlier about Devlin fighting for his political life, and also gives a little extra context to that comment as well. We quickly see Groves go up to Alvarez with some stamps and they're off to go licking. However, our attention is on a conversation between Saeed and McManus. The doc has spoken to McManus, saying that Saeed won't take his medication, but Saeed tells him that he hasn't decided what he's going to do yet. McManus tells him that he doesn't have a choice and that if Saeed refuses to take the medication then he will force him to take it instead. Saeed says, fine, let's make that deal, calling back to his meeting earlier about finding out how the drugs get into Oz. He tells McManus that he can't tell him much about how they get in, but to look at his own house, implying that it's the staff that are bringing the drugs in. Cut to Leo's office and Leo tells McManus that what Saeed has said is a big accusation but McManus says there have been a number of examples of officers smuggling drugs into prisons, citing Soledad, Attica, and even Oz itself in 1982. While I couldn't find any evidence of Soledad or Attica from back when Oz was filming, I did find articles about smuggling happening in Soledad in 2010 and 2013, so it seems to be a big problem even now. I also found out that Attica is still an operating prison. I was under the impression that it had closed down, similar to Alcatraz in San Francisco. But no, it is still open and can accommodate 2,253 inmates. Its most notorious currently being David Sweet, who killed a sheriff's deputy in Broome County in 2002 and escaped from Clinton Correctional in Danamora, New York in 2015, before being caught and rehoused in Attica in 2017. Leo says that he can remember the 82 smuggling in Oz as he was working solitary and two of his co-workers got busted. So that's the first reference to Leo being something other than the warden at Oz, and in the timeline places him as having worked at Oz for at least 15 years. Leo says that he will start an investigation of all staff, everyone from the officers to the librarian to McManus himself. He says that he's going to take the investigation slow so as to not spook anybody and because he wants to make the charges stick. So we cut to what I assume is the next day, and we see Healy arriving for work, and we see the officer from episode 2 who met Beecher's wife. I got my wires crossed a bit here with the character names. The other officer is Eddie Hunt, but I thought Healy said hi Mike to him, which would make his name Mike Hunt. Say that quickly and you'll see the joke. But of course it's Healy that's Mike, not Officer Hunt. Not that Tom Fontana needed to be coy about using the C word, there's plenty of that in the series, but that would have been a good way to sneak in one more. We see that searches between the staff are very relaxed as Healy's bag isn't checked because they're too busy talking about the previous night's sport. Healy walks through a detector similar to what you would see at the airport, but it doesn't sound so it's assumed he is clean. Healy goes into the locker room and sees that Diane is finishing up. So they have communal changing rooms in Oz, probably because Diane's the only female officer we've seen so far. She heads out and we see Healy place a small bag of drugs into his locker. We cut to Healy meeting Ryan in their corridor. He passes Ryan some drugs, who returns to M-City and heads to the drug pod to try and get high. Adabizi soon enters and tells Ryan to go see Nino. Ryan asks how long has Adabizi been Nino's Western Union, Adabizi saying since they've been partners, but Ryan tells him that he's the monkey to Nino's organ grinder. Adabizi tells Ryan to watch his pretty little ass before giving it a little slap. Ryan says that he doesn't need to because Adabizi is too busy watching it for him and tells him to keep his hands off. So Ryan goes to meet with Nina, who's tucking into some tomatoes and what looks like some sort of cottage cheese, but it's hard to tell. It looks horrible, whatever it is. 
Nino wants to take Ryan up on his offer of assistance, with Ryan saying that Nino knows that Adebisi will kill him the first chance that he gets, but Nino tells him not to worry about Adebisi, saying he may be a mongrel but he is effective. He tells Ryan the favour he needs is for him to shut down Healy's drug operation. Ryan tries to play dumb, but Nino is well aware that Ryan knows about it. He also knows that Healy and Ryan's brother are friends and says that Healy has been Ryan's archangel since coming to Oz, and Ryan has been running tits for Healy. Ryan continues to plead his innocence, but Nino says that he isn't going to hold it against him and that he would have done the same. The problem is that Healy's business is starting to cut into Nino's, which he isn't going to allow, and he wants Ryan to set Healy up, and that if he does, then he will take care of Ryan from now on. Ryan says that Healy has been good to him, but he'll do it. Nino says that how Ryan sets him up is up to him, he's not bothered about the how, just get it done. So Ryan heads back to the corridor to meet with Healy again. He says that he needs more tits, but Healy tells him that he gave him a huge pair not too long ago. Ryan says that they go Boralis in M-City, and Healy says that he will be able to get some more, but it will be later. We see Ryan in the gym hitting the speed bag when Ronald comes over. Ryan offers him some drugs for free, and Ronald thinks that he's going to ask him to kill someone, which he says that he won't do. However, Ryan says that he isn't looking for anybody to be killed, but tells Ronald to go see Leo and McManus, and tell them he's found another drug connection. Ronald asks who Ryan is busting, and Ryan says that he's going to give them himself. So we're back in the corridor again, with Ryan going to meet Healy. They do a handover of drugs, but McManus, Leo, and some other officers storm in to arrest Healy. Leo tells the other officers to take Ryan to the hall. McManus punches Healy in the mouth, it's the last chance he's going to get to do it, so he's taking it. Leo tells him that that's going on his record, but McManus isn't bothered. He's just glad to have finally been able to lay one on Healy. And we see Diane come round the corner to witness the aftermath. In Leo's office, Healy says that he has given everything that he had to Oz. And Leo then says that he then decided to take everything that he could. He understands that Oz isn't paradise, but Healy swore an oath and then broke that oath, and he has no sympathy for him. Leo is right up in Healy's face. It's a great showing of authority from Leo. He tells some officers who look like they're from the DEA to take Healy away, who on his way out says to wait until Leo needs somebody like him to back him up. He won't be there and he can kiss his ass goodbye. McManus goes to see Ryan in the hall, asking if he'll testify against Healy, but Ryan says that if he talks, then every other guard will be waiting in line to take a shot. So for that reason, he isn't going to testify. McManus leaves, saying that he'll see Ryan in a month. Officer Hunt, who we saw earlier, enters the cell and asks Ryan if he knows who ratted out Healy. So maybe Hunt and Healy were in on it together, and splitting proceeds? It could explain the relaxed search when Healy got there that morning. Ryan says that he doesn't know, but that if he was a betting man, which we know that he is, he'd put his money on Ronald. So we cut to the prison infirmary, and Ronald is being wheeled in on a stretcher, and he's suffering from severe head trauma, so the guards seem to have put a beating on him with their truncheons, or nightsticks if you will. And we then see Ryan in the hall going through drug withdrawal, smacking at the door, scratching at the walls, and generally losing the plot. This is presumably very early on in Ryan's time in the hall, as according to drugs.ie, heroin, which seems to be Ryan's drugs of choice, stays in a person's systems for between three to four days in urine, and one to two days in the blood. However, some studies suggest that heroin has a half-life of as little as 30 minutes. An officer comes in eventually and tells Ryan that his month is up, Ryan saying that it was a piece of cake. We cut back to M-City, where Adebisi and Nino are playing Pinochle. Adebisi, having not understood what the game is called, says... Who is this Pinocchio? I don't play games. And Nino asks the question that we all want to know the answer to. How do you keep that hat on your head? Velcro? Ryan comes over and asks to be dealt in. And Nino, in what I hope is an improvised line, asks, You play Pinochle? 
Ryan says no, but he can learn, and Nino dismisses Adebisi from the game so he can talk to Ryan. Adebisi takes a long, hard stare at Ryan before he leaves, feeling like Ryan is trying to muscle him out of their partnership. Nino starts to explain the rules of Pinochle, and like I say, I really hope that whole part was improvised. It's just the way he asks you play Pinochle seemed so off the cuff. Adebisi heads to underneath some stairs in the corner of M-City where he finds Kenny taking some drugs, rips it from his hand and snorts some himself. Kenny says that Adebisi is in a mood, Adebisi saying he's in a mood alright, that being a mood to kill and motions over to Ryan and Nino. Kenny says that he wouldn't mind a piece of Nino's arse himself, and Adebisi says that when the time is right, he's all Kenny's. Adebisi leaves and we see Kenny snort some more drugs to close out Act 2. You take a drug, right? The chemicals, they rush through your body, rush through your brains, and the sensations are... You want the sensations again and again and again, but let me tell you, you can also get addicted to grief to guilt, to hate, because when you feel dead inside, even bad sensations make you feel like you're alive! So Act 3 starts off with Beecher and Schillinger in their pod. Beecher starts to get ready for bed, but he seems to have forgotten that he needs to give Schillinger a goodnight kiss. Schillinger says that he feels like Beecher is starting to not love him anymore and makes Beecher says that he does love him, but Beecher seems very unenthusiastic. Schillinger says that the romance has gone, but that he knows the cure. He reaches into a footlocker that they have in their pod and hands Beecher some lipstick, telling him that he was saving it for his birthday. Schillinger tells him to put some on, but Beecher refuses. Whereas he may have forced him to do so another time, Schillinger plays it off as Beecher wanting to surprise him with it in the future and that he can wait, but not too long. So this is just the next chapter in Beecher's dehumanisation at the hands of Schillinger, and as a result we see Beecher snorting some heroin in the next scene, which seems to become a more regular thing for Beecher in a way of numbing himself to the pain and humiliation. We see Beecher heading to Sister Pete's office while under the influence of drugs, and he passes a trans inmate outside of there with nail polish and makeup on their face, acting as sort of a glimpse into Beecher's possible future. First it's a lipstick, next it'll be nail polish and so on. He heads to his computer, but Sister Pete sees that he is under the influence. She tells him that she knows life can be hideous in Oz, especially for someone with a lack of street skills like Beecher, but that drugs are not the answer and that she wants him to start attending her drug counselling sessions. Beecher is very aloof to the idea, but that's more likely due to the drug fueled state that he's got himself into. Sister Pete goes to McManus and says that she doesn't know when Beecher started with the drugs, but she doesn't think that it's been too long and that hopefully they can rehab him quickly. Manor says that he'll have officers monitor Beecher so he can see who he's hanging out with. Sister Pete says that it can't be Schillinger who's supplying the drugs, as he's so anti-drugs he makes her look like Robert Downey Jr. Now that, in 2018, is a very dated reference, and a lot of people forget and in some cases don't even know about the problems that Robert Downey Jr. was having at this time. He went on a bender that seemed to last from around 1996 up to about 2001, and was arrested a number of times for various drug charges. Having said that, all credit to him for turning his life around, and he is now one of the biggest stars in the movie industry, and according to Forbes magazine, he earned a reported $48 million in 2017. McManus suggests that maybe they should talk to members of Beecher's family, but we already know that Genevieve is divorcing him and Sister Pete says that she and the kids have moved away. But there are parents and siblings that they could reach out to. McManus then suggests about maybe staging an intervention, but Pete thinks it might be too soon for that, but a visit from one relative might be worth a shot. McManus mentions about how Beecher had alcohol issues on the outside, and Pete says that it's pathetic how Beecher has been jailed for one addiction and that they've let him start another. 
So Beecher has a visit with his mum and they share a hug together. This is the first time that we've seen Beecher's mum, played here by Kathleen Widows, who is most famous for playing the role of Emma Snyder on the long-running soap opera As the World Turns, in which she appeared on 1,445 episodes from 1985 to 2010. She does appear a couple more times on Oz, but it'll be a while until we see her again. Beecher notices her Chanel perfume and mentions about how he remembers her and his dad getting ready to go out all dressed up when he was young. I have a similar memory whenever I smell Paco Rabanne aftershave, as that's my dad's favourite. But Beecher says that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so much like McManus feeling a disturbance in the Force last week, maybe Beecher is a secret member of the Jedi Order too. I'm going to have to refer to Beecher's mum simply as Mrs. Beecher because we never find out her actual name. She's only credited as either Mrs. Beecher or Tobias Beecher's mother online. I'm sure if I looked hard enough I'll find some Oz fanfiction in which she has a name. She says that she's spoken to McManus and that he suspects Beecher has been doing drugs. Beecher doesn't come out and say that he is doing drugs but says that she doesn't understand what it's like in Oz. She says she can imagine, but Beecher tells her that she can't, and he thanks God for that every night. He then says that if she wants to talk about anything else, that's fine, but if she came to lecture, then to not do so and not put that final knife in his heart. They hug again as Beecher starts to cry, and we cut back to... The drug pod, where Beecher is snorting some heroin with Ryan, so it's very much becoming a full-scale addiction for Beecher, rather than just when he gets to a low point. He's getting to the point where he's having to do it every day. We have the slowed-down sound again as the inmates are called for the count, which is mislabeled as Get Out in the DVD subtitles, and both men stumble out to their own pods. So in the next scene, Beecher is taken to one of Sister Pete's drug counselling sessions. He's being escorted by an officer, so we don't know if Beecher is going of his own free will or if McManus and Sister Pete are starting to stage that intervention after all. Also attending the session are Augustus and Ronald, who is back out of the hospital, and we also meet John, Bill, and then Willie Munson, played here by Richard Hamilton. I had only seen him in one other show prior to this, and that was when he played Big Willie in the episode Where There's Smoke, There's Fired from the third series of Frasier, where he plays a Texas tycoon who buys the radio station. The way he's dressed here, he is the personification of Scruffy the Janitor from Futurama. His most famous role prior to Oz was probably in 1985's Pale Rider alongside Clint Eastwood, but he had been acting for a long time before that. Munson says that he once knew a Cyrus Beecher and asks if he was any relation. Beecher says that he isn't a relation, which is a good thing because Munson thinks that Cyrus was a cocksucker anyway. Sister Pete starts the session by explaining that its purpose is for the group to talk about themselves and their feelings in the hope that they can find the cause of their issues. Beecher is sitting there the whole time with his arms folded, almost like he doesn't want to get called upon and he's putting a barrier in the way. But Sister Pete goes straight to him and asks Beecher to say what he is addicted to. Beecher doesn't want to open up, so she switches the question to Augustus who says that he was addicted to crack and has been clean for 22 months. This is the first time in a few episodes that we've really learned anything about Augustus, outside of seeing how he lost the use of his legs and when he was talking to Adebisi. The rest of the time he's either been our humble narrator or he's been playing checkers with Ryan. Munson starts to talk about how he got hooked on opium when he was in the army, and we also see that Beecher is starting to sweat. He's having a real problem being around others. We see Munson's flashback in which he killed a prostitute while he was high, for which he was sentenced in 1945 to 110 years, up for parole in 60. So even at this stage, he's still eight years away from his parole hearing. The group asks him why he killed the prostitute, but he says that he didn't think he was on account of the drugs. He thought he was being affectionate. Beecher snaps and says that he can't sit there listening to any more stories. Sister Pete tries to calm him down, but Beecher pushes her and runs away, but is quickly apprehended by two guards. This is the only appearance for Richard Hamilton as Whitney Munson in the series. 
After this, he had a handful of other small acting roles before passing away on December 21st, 2004, aged 83. We see Beecher in the shower room watching two other inmates kiss each other, and he is then approached by one of the drag queen inmates who Schillinger has put in charge of giving Beecher a makeover. You can see Schillinger lurking in the background of the shot before Beecher takes another huge snort of heroin and his makeover begins. We see Scott and Schillinger up in Schillinger's pod playing what I think is backgammon, but I could be wrong. But Beecher returns and Schillinger reacts to the makeover as other inmates look on and we fade to black. It's another really well done reveal as Beecher comes back to the pod. It's shown from his point of view, so we don't get the reveal until after seeing Schillinger's reaction. My God. You're even prettier than I thought you'd be. We see Alvarez smacked out of his tree, he's having some sort of hallucination and is cupping his hands as if he was holding his baby and speaking Spanish. Groves tells him that his baby is dead and Alvarez continues to hallucinate. Augustus delivers his final monologue before we cut to the corridor seeing someone lurking in the dark lighting up a blunt. Who is the man in the shadows? None other than McManus, so even he's resorting to drug use to get himself through the day and we fade to black to close the episode. I ain't saying drugs are good. But when your past is past and your present sucks, your future holds nothing but broken promises and dead dreams. The drugs, they kill the pain. Listen up, America. You ain't never gonna get rid of drugs until you cure pain. So that was season one, episode five, Straight Life. A lot happening again in this episode, and as a result we have a body count of one, and also saw the final appearances of a couple of cast members too. This episode saw the final appearance for Officer Mike Healy, played by Steve Ryan. Prior to us, Steve started his acting career in the TV movie Attica in 1980, co-starring Morgan Freeman, before appearing in two episodes of the original Law and Order series, as well as Swift Justice and New York Undercover. After us, he would appear in 14 episodes of the series Daddy-O, which aired on NBC and co-starred Michael Chiklis. He also had recurring roles in JAG, CSI appearing in both the regular show and the Miami spin-off but playing different characters, Arrested Development and The West Wing. Outside of television, Steve would star in Broadway plays such as I'm Not Rappaport, as well as revivals of On the Waterfront and Guys and Dolls. Steve Ryan would pass away on September 3rd, 2007 at the age of 60 after a long illness. Also leaving the show is Ronald Pokerwalt, played by Brian Tarantina. Before Oz, Brian appeared on TV shows such as The Equalizer and Miami Vice, as well as in the films Carlitos Way, Sweet Nothing and Bed of Roses. After his appearance on Oz, Brian would work with Tom Fontana again on 1997's Firehouse, before going on to appear in episodes of ER, The Sopranos, Gilmore Girls and Blue Bloods, just to name a few. His most recent work includes appearing in The Marvelous Miss Maisel for Amazon Studios, as well as the film Breaking Brooklyn. On the production side of things, while Leslie Libman will return to direct another episode of Oz in the future, this is Larry Williams' only directing credit on the show. In 1997, the pair directed Path to Paradise, the untold story of the World Trade Center bombing for HBO, and in 1998, the pair directed an adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World for USA Network, as well as four episodes of Homicide Life on the Street. Larry Williams would pass away on May 31st, 1999, aged 48. The most impactful exit from the show in this episode, however, is that of Paul Markstrom, played by Orville Lewis Duke, credited as O.L. Duke on the show. Duke's acting breakthrough came when he replaced Denzel Washington in a production of A Soldier's Play. Duke would also appear in Denzel Washington-related projects Malcolm X in 1992, 
2002's Antoine Fisher, and Out of Time in 2003. He would also do stunt work on the Denzel-fronted 2004 movie Man on Fire. Duke also had a successful theatre career, appearing in productions across the US and internationally. A member of the renowned Actors Studio in Manhattan, Duke also took the role of Interim Artistic Director for the New York-based Negro Ensemble Company from 2002 to 2004. During this time, Duke helped young black actors hone their skills sharing his work experience and teaching classes on method acting. Tragically, Duke died in a car crash on September 10th, 2004 in New York City while on his way home from an off-Broadway play. He was 51 years old. My MVP for the episode, I'm going to give it to Leo Glynn this time. Even though the undercover operation blew up in his face, you can understand the reasons for why he kept it a secret. I also felt that he showed a lot of authority when he was having to fire Mike Healy as well, so that's why I'm giving him the award this week. So that does it for this episode of Inside Oz. As always, you can send any comments or questions regarding the show to insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow the show on both Twitter and Instagram using the handle at insideozpodcast. Catch up on the previous episodes of the show on iTunes at insideozpodcast.podbean.com as well as the Podbean app, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Acast and many, many more. Make sure to subscribe wherever you can so that you can get the latest episode as soon as it's released and also leave a five-star review wherever you can. The five stars will help with exposure for the show, land it on the charts and help with the various podcasting algorithms that are out there. Put whatever you want in the review text box, make fun of my accent if you must, it's the five stars that matter. I'll catch you next time on Inside Oz when I look at Season 1, Episode 6, To Your Health. Turn